Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta Yerdena Azband. Our daf of the day, Masachet Yoma, daf Tet Zion, page 16. So, at the daf, top of the daf, we have a discussion, and it's uh, the, the Gemara is comparing um, a Mishnah in Masachet Midot with our Gemara here, and for my purposes right now, I'm leaving aside that Machlokin, and I'm going to read it straight and talk about what it's talking about, what it says here rather than the question of discrepancy between the two texts. It's none. So here's the, the Mishnah, really from Midot, but it's brought here. Ezrat nashim heta orech me'a It was a square. The Ezrat nashim, this area in the Beit HaMikdash, is basically a big, I don't know what, a big auditorium. It's open, right? So where it's called the Ezrat nashim, meaning the populations that could go there included the women. Um, it's not a women's section the way that we now have an Ezra Nashim and Shul, where it really means a women's section. And theoretically, anyway, men would not be there. In the Ezra Nashim, you would have men as well. Anyway, the dimensions here are 135 by 135. Meaning each of the four corners of this square, ulam, room, hall, whatever, each one of the four, four corners had a, was, it had a different designation, a different purpose. What were they, how were they used? So picture your square, meaning southeast. So we're talking about the, excuse me, the bottom Again, if you're looking at a paper, you could imagine a square drawn, and we're on the bottom right side. So this was the area for the Nizirim, the Nizirim meaning the Nazarites, and right, the Nazarites were a population that whenever they would finish their vows, whatever, they would have to come and bring a Korban Shlamim, and they would have to get their hair cut, and so on. Right? There's a whole procedure. You can find it in the Book of Numbers, Sefer Bamidbar, Perek Vav, Chapter six, and that is the Nizirim, and they would apparently have a corner of this room, um, of this ulam. It's not fair to call it a room; it's huge. Okay, so this is everything that they need to do in the Beit Hamikdash is happening in that area, in that corner of the of the ulam. So now we're talking about the the northeast, which is going to be the upper part, just above where that was, right on the right side, still. So the this that section was the um, the chamber, right, the room for the woodshed. And there, what did they do there? So it's the woodshed. So they're checking the wood because it, you know, was, wood could get blemished as well. It doesn't have quite the same kind of strictures that we would expect for a korban. But for example, and the example the Gemara gives is pretty clear in the event that the that the wood there would have worms, it would be disqualified. Um, okay, it's funny. Maravit in the northwest chambers. So now we're moving to the left side, but we're still now on the top. Yeah, I thought we've basically been going. Counterclockwise. Um, There's the chamber, the room of the lepers, right? Or however you're going to really translate those who have tzara'at. Um, 
Now, so what does that mean? That's where they would go. The people with Sarah would come and, and wait for their turn to get purified. And then for the last corner, which is the southwest corner, which is the bottom left corner, Maravit Romit, Amar he says, I forgot what they would use it for. So Abba Sha'ul answers him, Omer, uh, yeah, so, so he says, that was the area that was called the chamber, the room, the place of the oils, right? And that's where they would... Um, I don't leave all the different kinds of oils. So in the Ayin Vashem, that's where they would have wine and oil. Um, you create, and it's called the Chamber of the Oils. Okay, so now, there's a number of different things to talk about here. The first, and perhaps maybe the most obvious, is it's a little bit startling to hear somebody who may have even given the names to these places to begin to say, I forgot what they kept there, right? It's uh, a little disconcerting. So that's one thing to note. The other thing to note, and it's one of the reasons that I found this whole discussion to be really interesting, is that by having these designated sections of the Ezra Nashim, of this very large area, where basically anybody who wanted to get the Beit HaMikdash ended up in there, right? They had to traverse through it at the very least to get more inward, where there were more restrictions over where each different population could go. What happens here is that all of these Lishkaot, all of these chambers, are at least theoretically anyway, from what we have here from the Mishnah, they're all functioning at the same time. It's not like we've got a day a week for the Mitzorahin, for those who have Tzara'at, or a day a month for those who are coming clean from Nizirut. Meaning there's a recognition in the Avon and the Beit HaMikdash, in the service and the temple, the way things were set up to function, there's a recognition that the people, meaning the people out there, not the people in the Beit HaMikdash, the people out there were going to be functioning through all the different you know, permutations and capacities, whatever they might do in their worship, and that the temple has to provide for that, for whatever their needs might be, if they have to come off of Nizirut, or if they, you know, or I, whatever it is, right? All of these things are happening simultaneously or at least potentially happening simultaneously. It doesn't mean that you have you couldn't have a day that didn't have a Nazir, but it does mean that you could have a day that indeed has a Nazir and a Mitzorah, somebody coming up with Sarat, right, at the same time. And the functioning of the Beit HaMikdash has to accommodate all of that all of the time. It struck me, I think, because my sense is that um, I would wager with some kind of balagan, right? Meaning some kind of craziness with all these different things going on, as opposed to, and I've made this up, but I, you know, this idea of a pomp and circumstance kind of religion where things happen um, quietly with everybody's attention on the one thing. Here, at least simply by virtue of the geography, I guess, of this courtyard, right? They really had everything happening all at once. Well, I think, again, this is one of these Mishnahs that is so descriptive. And the way that you just explained it, Anne, it really gives you a much more visual picture of how active the Beit HaMikdash was. Yes, you couldn't go there if you were Tame. It's not that like you were there every day. But if you think about, you know, dealing with an entire nation and having to sort of, this was the center place where everybody's spiritual and religious needs had to be taken care of. It probably was fairly busy. 
um, and seeing that, you know, there sort of had to be all these different areas, depending on what those religious needs, you can sort of picture the hustle and bustle that actually took place there. Yeah, there's something kind of appealing to me about it, that it's, it's, it shows to me, or at least implies to me, how this was very much the religion that also involved the people, uh, you know, all the people who might have whatever religious needs, that the r- ritual needs that they would take care of there. It wasn't just, we've been talking about the avoda of the, of the, I'm sorry, of the Kohen Gadol, which is really just him, you know, and the people out there aren't busy at all. I mean, they might be busy, but not with this. And so here I feel like, oh, right, everybody's involved. Don't forget yeah, I know. I think that's a great point that everybody everybody's involved and everybody would have different reasons um, for why they would need to uh, come up there. Um, I want to go on to another piece here, um, which is, you know, the Gemara then tries to figure out who wrote this Mishnah. And they are talking about, uh, so they start with, and this is so in Amarala, Hachanami Mistavar de Rabbi Eliezer ben Yaakov he. So it must be that this, um, that the Mishnah that they quoted from Midot has to be uh, Rabbi Eliezer ben Yaakov. Uh, and then they're going to quote another Mishnah. So before we get to that Mishnah, because I want to mention something about it, you know, first they go through, is this Rabbi Eliezer ben Yaakov? Then they go through later, maybe it's actually Rabbi Yehuda. And one of the things I thought that was interesting, and we haven't spent a lot of time talking about this, is the whole idea of how Mishnah came about and that it, that certain Masechtot were sort of written or compiled by a particular Tana, and therefore it follows a particular person's um, opinion. So, you know, the one time I think we did mention this a little bit was when we talked about in Brachot, uh, in Daf Chavchet, the whole story with Rabbi Elazar and the whole idea when Rabbi Elazar became the Nasi, that the Beit Midrash opened up and Masachet Ejot was written that day. Now we know Masachet Ejot by design, actually contains many different people's opinions, that it's not actually around one theme. Um, that's a tractate that is in Nizikin. Um, it does not have Gemara on it, so it's not something that we are going to learn together, but I encourage all of you to look it up. And you'll see it's many, it's a collection of many different Mishnayos on many different topics, um, and that that was written on that day. So that was sort of the idea that once learning became accessible, that tractate was able to be written. But here's the idea that maybe certain tractates really sort of follow the derach or the way of one particular Tana. And that's what they're trying to sort of work out on this page. And they're doing it by sort of quoting another, you know, uh, another Tanaitic statement there and saying, well, this is Rabbi Eliezer ben Yaakov, and that fits like Rabbi Eliezer ben Yaakov, or, th- or this sounds like it, you know, it's consistent with that quoted opinion of Rabbi Eliezer ben Yaakov. So it must be that that's how we know the whole tractate was written by it. And I, I think there's something to pause on here about sort of the role of Mishnah, which again is, is that the goal of Mishnah wasn't, or maybe any Tanitic literature I'd go as far to say, wasn't to sort of have one opinion and be like, this is the halakha. By design, it acknowledges, or this page is really, the Gemara is really telling us, by design, you know, it's a collection of opinions and that's all it is. There's no monolithic Tana Kalacha. And I'm always struck by that when we talk about the study of Talmud. It's just how comfortable the Tanaim and Amaraim are with difference of opinion. And again, I think that's something we really don't live with today. Um, but they're just really comfortable with it. There can really be different understandings. Here we're talking about a different, for Masach and Midot, 
we're talking about different understandings about the actual structure of the Beit HaMikdash itself, which is very interesting. And again, I'll go back to what we talked about a daf or two ago about the idea of memory and the idea that some of this was lost even just a couple hundred of years later. But, you know, to keep in mind that it's not that when we learn a Mishnah, it's supposed to be that that was everybody's opinion. By design, it's a collection of opinions. So I think that lines up very nicely, like that second half of the daf or the first half of the daf in terms of this diversity of activity, diversity of opinions, diversity of in this, this Judaism is a strange religion in that it allows for this, right? It is not only does it allow for it, it is the, the what meat and potatoes, the skeleton, it's, you know, whatever, whatever metaphor you want to say that this is the really the essence of how it all works. And it works that way within the texts and it works that way within the practices. And yeah, I think it could take a little bit to get used to when people kind of gravitate to things being much more streamlined and, you know, this is the way to do things. Well, we don't have it that way, right? We have all these different opinions and go figure it out. I, I would agree with that. Um, I just want to go on with the Mishnah that they read here. It's none. So now they're going to quote a Mishnah here that's in Midot. It's Parakbet Mishnah Dalit. And it says the following, Kol HaKatalim. So all the walls that were there, that enclosed sort of the whole temple mat area, they were very tall. Except for the eastern wall. Because the Kohen who was burning the Paraduma would stand basically on Har Hazetim, would stand on, you know, the Mount of Olives. And while he was burning the ashes, he needed to sort of look at and have kavana towards the heichal itself. And also at the time when he actually sprinkled the blood of the paraduma. Um, and I think, you know, and then the Mishnah, the rest of the dap really, besides we're teasing out this thing of who are these Mishnayos like, really gives us a very nice visual picture of what the Temple Mount looked like. So we know anybody who's walked through Jerusalem knows how hilly it is. Um, but the idea is, is that it didn't, wasn't like the structures just kind of like, you know, sloped upward, right? Obviously the temple itself was sort of on the highest part, but there were sort of all these different terraces and that's what the structures were built on, out on. And that's sort of what gets described here. And part of what needed to happen is, is because there's a Pasuk in Bamidbar, uh, chapter 19, verse four, right? Where the Paraduma can't be slaughtered inside the Machanab. And and it basically says explicitly that the Kohen's going to sprinkle the blood. You can look up this pasuk facing the the Mishkan, facing the tent of the meeting seven times. So by teaching this, what we learn from this is two things: is that when the Kohen sprinkles the ash water, he needs to be facing the you know the Mishkan, right? But or the Beit Hamikdash when the Beit Hamikdash is built in the Heichal, he needs to be able to see the entrance of it as well. And so therefore, when you think about it, this was a particular avoda that had to be done outside, right? First of all, the burning of it had to be done outside the preparation of it. I assume it's not said explicitly in the text, but because that coin becomes Tameh, nobody Tameh can be in the Beit HaMikdash. And then also the person that you bring, right, who needs to be sprinkled also can't go to the Beit HaMikdash. So it's interesting to see that they wanted sort of this line of vision in order to connect the avoda to the Beit HaMikdash itself. And I think this shows us a real centrality of religion and the and the importance of the Beit HaMikdash. 
and make sense why this piece of the paradigma could not be done in the Beit HaMikdash. But yet what the that Pasuk in Bamidbar in chapter 19, verse 4 is telling us and what we learn from it is, is that yes, it's not done there, but you must be able to visualize it because you are still being connected to the avoda, to the spirituality of the Beit HaMikdash, even though you're doing it outside of the Beit HaMikdash. And I thought that was a really interesting point and I think says something how important avoda was and that really at this point, it, religion was really meant to be very strongly centralized. You know, today we function in a world that there's tons of different shuls and, you know, people have shuls in their own homes. I mean, yes, people sometimes, you know, belong to big community shuls. That's not even the case at all in Israel. Um, but here there really was, the idea was there was one place and it was sort of the avoda was done by one group of people and that's very different than what our religion looks like today. And this Mishnah really reminded me of that. It is actually more common in Israel than you might think. But I do find this point really interesting, especially in light of what we're talking about beforehand, about how there is involvement by so many different individuals, right? It's this mix of this central, centralized practice with a recognition that people are doing different things, even at the same time. I think that still typifies what we're talking about when we're talking about it was really an unusual religion even then, and all the more so now with the absence of the Beit HaMikdash. But um, I think that there's a lot of food for thought here in terms of, you know, what is the nature of Judaism, certainly at its core. Absolutely. And I think even thinking about how the structure was built in a way, you know, to enhance that avoda is also interesting, that that eastern wall needed to be lower so that the Kohen doing the avoda of the Paraduma you know, could fulfill a halachic requirement of it. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rake us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP and our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. Mm-hmm.